0: You're listening to The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome Podcast. Welcome to The Reinvention Project. I am Jim Rome, and as always, I am so pumped that you made your way here as we talk about reinvention and transformation. I can't tell you how many listeners, even friends, and family members have told me, man, I'm in such a rut, I have to reinvent myself, or this is exactly the type of pod that I need at this time in my life. And all I could say is, right Me too, which is exactly why I've taken this on, because I am looking for true reinvention and personal transformation as well. And I'm here to share what I've learned in my time in the media with you and to learn right alongside with you. Now, if you're familiar with my work or the Jim Rohn podcast or my radio or TV programs, you know that I have a deep admiration and fascination with Navy SEALs. This is not unusual. A lot of us do, of course. I mean, who amongst us does not want to be tougher mentally, physically, and emotionally? And I've had the pleasure to meet numerous SEALs, some of whom I consider to be very good friends. And they're all badasses, every single one of them. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that I can do what they do. Of course not. But I sure as hell would like to be able to emulate some of what they do. I'd love to be able to work in some of the attributes that make a Navy SEAL a Navy SEAL. Which brings me to this week's guest, Rich Deviney, a Navy SEAL and the author of a book entitled The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Not only a badass, as you might expect, he is that, but one of the more cerebral people I have ever spoken to. He's a former commanding officer. He served more than 20 years as a SEAL with more than 13 overseas deployments. He's an author, a leadership expert, and in this conversation is going to share some of the keys to optimal performance in virtually any environment what you want to do is get ready to hammer out some notes because you're going to get about three hours of content in less than one hour and it is all gold and as always stick around for my thoughts and my reaction after the conversation episode five of the reinvention project with guest rich is coming at you right now This podcast is sponsored by Carnivore Trading. We are going to get into why you want their stock market information on an everyday basis. Details in this pod. So Rich, it's just absolutely great to have you here. I want to say that you've written a fascinating book called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, which of course we'll get into, but let me start right here. Like a lot of people who read your book, or seek you out, I am fascinated by Navy SEALs and what it takes to become a Navy SEAL and who makes it and who doesn't. And frankly, it's been that way for me for a long time. As an example, the first SEAL that I ever met was somebody who I became very good friends with, the late Richard McElwitz. Now, I don't know if you ever knew Mac or knew of him, but he was a tremendous guy, and I had a great deal of love and respect for him. And then I read and study as much as I can about the SEALs. Of course, I read your book. I'm an enormous David Goggins guy, Jocko Willink. I've got great respect for Mark Devine, who I've talked to a number of times. I just read Brent Gleason's book. Obviously, I'm fascinated by and I get a great deal out of studying Navy Seals and folks like you. So having said all of that, let me start right there. Why did you, Rich, want to become a Navy Seal?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up wanting to be a Navy pilot. My dad was a private pilot, and my twin brother and I got uh, got obsessed with flying, and it was around the 19 it was around the Gulf War in 1990, I read an article about the Seals and I realized I discovered who they were and I said, man, these guys do everything. They they operate in the snow, in the jungle, in the desert. They're underwater. I was, I, I was always, I loved being underwater. I loved everything about the water. And I said, this sounds exciting. So I went to uh, Purdue and was ROTC and um, ultimately just said to myself, you know, I knew I could be a pilot, but I just never wanted to look over at the SEAL teams and wonder if I could do it. <laughs> So I so I chose to go steel teams
0: and uh, fortunately it worked out pretty well. Yeah, That's amazing. Now, the book itself is called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Note, optimal performance, not peak performance. So what is the distinction to be made between the two of those things? And then, Rich, why should we all be shooting for optimal performance as opposed to peak performance?
1: yeah it's a it's a distinction that I had to kind of come to realize when people kept on asking me about the seal teams and and they had the, this assumption that the seals were the were the kind of the best peak performers on the planet and i I had to disagree because I remembered my time in seal training when I was freezing in the surf zone or even time in combat and you know there's nothing peak about that you know peak is an apex from which we can only come down and it oftentimes has to be prepared for and scheduled and planned i mean the the professional football player for example can can and does spend his entire week preparing and and planning and prepping to peak for three hours on sunday and and there's nothing wrong with that that's perfect and some business folks can do that as well if you have a presentation it's okay to peak but optimal is really about how can i do the very best i can in the moment whatever the best looks like in that moment right so sometimes the best feels and looks like peak it's slow states and everything's clicking everything's going great but other times peak or optimal performance your best is I'm just, I'm head down. I'm, I'm grinding it out. I'm taking, all I got is just to take step by step. And, and it, what it does, I think for, for all of us is it gives us a, a permission to modulate our performance. Listen, I, I don't, when I'm driving to the grocery store, I don't have to be peaked. You know, I can, I can understand, I can be like out of a level 10, I can be level four. I know how to modulate that so I can prepare the peak when I need to peak, but also pat myself on the back and, and recognize, success, even if it means, hey, I'm just gutting it out, it's dirty, it's ugly, it's gritty, but I'm taking it step by step, and that's okay, too.
0: All right, so that's really interesting. You've got me rethinking this thing, because when I started doing this, Rich, I would even say things like, I want to talk about reinvention and transformation and, quote, peak performance, but the way you lay that out, like, if we're not elite athletes or we're not in spec ops, is peak performance even realistic, or should we forget about that altogether and only focus on optimal performance?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think I think we, it should be kind of the reverse. We should, we should, we should uh, well, not the reverse, but we should think about not throwing peak performance out, but just understanding that there's a time and place for peak, and, and it's perfectly okay to plan and prepare for those moments where you need to peak. But, I mean, even the pro athletes, no matter who you talk about, no matter how good they are, I guarantee there are moments in their lives where they're like, hey, I'm not peaking right now, <laughs> you know, and and I think what it allows us to do is understand that if you are just uh, striving to do the best you can in the moment, um, that's great, and, you know, just look at 2020. All of us were thrown into this quarantine situation overnight, and I guarantee you, no matter who you were on the planet, very few, of, if any of us, felt like we were peaking in that moment. We were we were doing the best we could, and that's okay, and that's what, that's what gets us through, um, and so it's okay to go either way, and I think optimal is the, is the healthier and more realistic thing to
0: strive for. So, Rich, as a sidebar, like, in terms of Hell Week, was there any moment during Hell Week that you peaked? Would you even try to peak? Or is that just a case of optimal performance where you put your head down and you just go step by step, minute by minute, and just get through it?
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I, I, maybe I peaked when they secured us. Right. <laughs> and I right. was like, we're done, right? But, uh, but no, it's all about... Uh, it, it, what it is is it allows us to understand that life is uncertain, life is challenging we don't know we we don't know what's coming and so so to understand one's ability to to modulate one's energy levels and it's okay to recover when you have time to recover, find those moments because you never know when you're going to have to go for longer than you're thinking you're going to go for right and um and it 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 gives you this kind of um aerobic mindset versus this anaerobic mindset and and life is aerobic you know and certainly there's time to be anaerobic but but life is an aerobic uh is a, is an aerobic game it's a long game it's a game of endurance and so uh so when you can rest rest when you can peak peak uh but when you're just gutting it out and when things are tough and it's bad and it's gritty and it's dirty pat yourself on the back for stepping through even if it's ugly even if it's dirty and the field teams always say hey listen You know, a lot of the missions, they don't go the way they're expected and sometimes they're pretty ugly. But if we accomplish a mission and everybody came home okay, we're good with that, right? It doesn't have to be pretty, it just has to get done.
0: No, and you mentioned a lot of things right there that I want to double back to, the sense of recovery, this sense of grit, and these are all really important things. This is the day, all right? Big day. This is the day that picking winning stocks gets super easy for you. I'm talking about carnivore trading. I'm on carnivore trading. I have been. And what I love about this is it's a radically different stock targeting website that is disrupting Wall Street big time. And the way they're doing that is with a small elite squad of stock market strategists. These are the guys who influence the market influencers, the big guys. They're pulling back the curtain so folks like you and I, from newbies to portfolio managers, can see exactly what they're trading. This is why I signed up. For a low monthly fee, I get real-time text alerts of the explosive stocks that they're trading right now. I get it right on my phone. I check it all day long. It's actually awesome. It's like, dude, here's what we're hitting, and here's why we're hitting it. And that's my choice. I can mirror their trades through my discount broker, or I can pass. Now, you may not want to pass. Passing is actually nuts because their trades are crushing the S&P 500. Trading carnivores trades is like earning your PhD in the stock market. And you will love this part about it. They guarantee that you'll earn five times your monthly subscription or double your money back. Let me repeat that. Five times your monthly fee just by doing what they do. I've got two free weeks, so you can check it out for yourself. That's how I did it. I took the two weeks. I loved it. Visit scoreourtrades.com. Enter the code JIM. Scoreourtrades.com. Enter the code JIM, J-I-M. See website for guaranteed terms and conditions. Past performance, not a guarantee of future earnings. You also make a really important distinction, Rich, in the book between skills and attributes in order to further the discussion. What is the difference between those two things?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a distinct difference, and it's something I realized, you know, when I was looking back at my own SEAL career. You know, when I was going through BUDS, you know, and I'm sure most of your audience members know, BUDS basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training is the, the course you go to to become a Navy SEAL, and it's, it's rigorous and it's brutal, and it's one of the hardest in the military. Um, and you spend hundreds of hours running around with boats on your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising and running around with 300-pound telephone poles on your shoulders and freezing in the surf zone. And I look back at my career – and I, I, I did hundreds of combat missions overseas. I did thousands of training evolutions. Never on one did I ever carry a boat on my head or a telephone pole on my shoulder. Mm. And so the, what they were doing to us in Seal in, in training wasn't training us on how to be Navy in that moment. They were, they were putting us into environments to see if we had what it took, if we could do the job. And that was not about teaching us skills. It was about teasing out these innate qualities that tell us how we're going to behave in un. Uh, challenging environment those are attributes
0: all right so clearly skills are teachable you can teach us skills but are attributes teachable
1: uh they are they are developable okay <laughs> and so so the, the quick back of the envelope test you know so so skill is yeah again we we don't we, we, we learn a skill we're, we're not, we don't we're not born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike or shoot a gun they tell us what to do in certain situations here's how and when to do those things and because they're visible, They're very easy to assess, measure, and test. We can see how well anyone does any one of those things. And that's, I mean, that's the basis of stats for sports, right? Um, But in, in, in the business environment and other kind of environments, what skills don't tell us is how we're going to operate when things go south, when things go sideways and things become unknown and uncertain because you can't apply a known skill to an unknown environment. This is where we lean on our attributes, which are innate. We're born, all of us are born with levels of adaptability, resilience, and patience. And certainly they develop over time and environment. Uh, but we can see levels of those things in small children. They inform our behavior rather than direct it. They tell us how we're going to show up. My son's levels of perseverance and resilience inform the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride a bike and he fell off a dozen times doing so. And because they're hidden, because they're kind of in the background, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't sit across from an interview at a table and assess their level of adaptability or level of patience, right? So, So the times you see this most viscerally are in times of, challenge, uncertainty, and stress. A quick back-of-the-envelope test, because skills and attributes get conflated all the time, a quick back-of-the-envelope test to, to, to decide whether or not it's a skill or an attribute is ask yourself, can I teach it or can I be taught it? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. Um, it, Jim, if you wanted to say, if you said, hey, Rich, I want to learn how to shoot a gun and hit a target, I could take you out to, out to a range. I could teach you how to do that within about three hours. That's a skill. If you said, Rich, I want to be more patient, I couldn't sit you down and teach you a class on patients, okay? To develop an attribute, it takes self-motivation, it takes self-direction, and then it takes the, it takes the, the uh, ability for that person, that individual, to deliberately step into discomfort so that they may test that attribute. You would have to go then decide to and step into situations that tested your patients so that you might develop it. So they are developable. It just can't be done the same way as a skill.
0: And I would imagine, Rich, and you have to be committed. In order to develop those things, you have to be committed and put the time in. Now, something in terms of the grit attributes that you write about in the book, let me ask you about resilience. In fact, in terms of that, you write about the two-minute rule. What is the two-minute rule?
1: Rule is a... a is a, uh, kind of a rule that my, one of my favorite CEOs taught us, and it was something his grandfather taught him, and it was really this idea about how to practice resiliency, and that is if anything bad happens, all right, and I'll call bad little tragedies, obviously some big tragedies that take more than two minutes, but if anything bad happens, you have two minutes to kind of kick the dirt, wallow, feel sorry for yourself, and after 120 seconds, you get back to business, right? You say, hey, I'm done, and you get back to baseline. Same thing happens when something great happens. Mission goes, well, get whatever, whatever good thing happens, right? you got two minutes to say, great, celebrate, pat yourself on the back, you know, you know, um, rest on your laurels. After 120 seconds, you get back to baseline and you keep on going. This is a way that we can begin to practice the resiliency muscle because, again, there are going to be things that hit us that are going to take a lot more than two minutes to uh, get over, and there will be some celebrations that we want to celebrate for more than two minutes, right? Um, but if you take the little tragedies, the spilled milk, the traffic, the, the spat with, you know, with a, with a partner or loved one, um, those little things, and you practice these two-minute rules, then you start to exercise the muscle of resilience so that when the big tragedies hit, hopefully you're better equipped to kind of get back to, back to baseline and hopefully grow from it.
0: Huh. So what about, is that the goal to just get back to baseline, or can we get better and go farther than just baseline? How would you turn that? Oh yes,
1: yeah. So, so yeah, so so the the ultimate goal is what I'll call anti fragility, which is a great book by Nassim Khalib. and that's the idea that when you get hit, you get you know get hit with something, uh, when you come back, you've grown stronger, right? You your baseline has moved, uh, and and you've become anti fragile, and so so yes, that is the goal. That definitely takes so that gets into what we were going to talk about, which is recovery, you, to to become to 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 be resilient. You know and get over something get back to baseline take some recovery take some reflection but to really get you know exercise anti-fragility to grow from it it takes some deep recovery and deep reflections where you you have to look back you have to have recovered enough to have kind of distilled most of your emotions so you can ke- start asking some cogent and logical questions about that event and say hey what did i learn how did i grow how did i become better and that's the way we start striving towards anti-fragility because if we don't do that and if we don't do at least resiliency then we're going to fall into entropy, and we're just going to get uh, worse and worse over time, which is which is trouble.
0: So, if Rich, if recovery is critical, I mean, what does that look like? How do we recover?
1: Yeah, well, the, the first and most the most the first and best way is sleep. Right. <laughs> you know, sleep is a natural way to recover. Deep, effective, good sleep um, is the human body's best way to recover. Um, other ways is to understand our physiology. Uh, in essence, um, to understand how, what and how those things are that allow us to get calm, get peaceful, uh, gratitude, get grateful, get joyous. Um, you know, people, some people meditate, you know, and that's for some. For others, meditation is tough. Um, you know, some people pray, some people surf, some people, any type of activity that allows you to um, be peaceful, be calm, be joyous. Um, I like to run. You know, I don't meditate very well, but I'll go for a run in the woods here in Virginia where I live and I won't have headphones, I won't tie myself, I'll be by myself in the woods, and it just allows my whole mind and body to clear out, and it's a deep recovery thing for me, and I'll, you know, hanging with my kids, hanging with my wife, those types of things. So, so we can inflict in our, in our daily routine some of these recovery moments, um, kind of micro recovery moments, uh, it could be visualization too, or music, that allow us to charge that battery um, so that we're not as much of a deficit at the end of the day, but we're also more prepared when some of that big stuff hits and we don't have, we have to go longer without any effective time to recover.
0: The tournament is here. You know what that means? DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy, is celebrating with their largest free college basketball survivor pool ever. How large? $1 million Dollars in total prizes up for grabs. One mil. And if that's not enough, when you enter the free, I want to be very clear about that. It's free. When you enter the free DraftKings $1 million survivor pool, you get a shot at winning $10,000. It's so easy to play. You pick one team per day. If they win, you survive and advance to the next round. The last person standing is the winner. Remember, you can only pick a team once for the entire tournament, so choose wisely. DraftKings is a safe and secure app. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Get in on all this week's action. Download the DraftKings app right now. Enter the code Rome during sign up and enter the free $1 million survivor pool. Again, the code name is Rome R O M E to enter DraftKings free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions do apply. See draftkings.com for details. In terms of sleep, I'm kind of curious, like I've, I'm of this mindset and less and less as I get older, like, hey, man, I, I can get by on five hours sleep. I got work to do. I got to grind. I got to work hard. I mean, what do you make of that? Can people really effectively get by on five hours sleep consistently? And I'm curious, how many hours a night do you get consistently?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I, when I talk to the neuroscientists about this, they tell me that it's not, as much, it's not so much about quantity of sleep as it is quality. And so I am someone almost like you. I, I'm pretty much a six hour a night. Uh, sleeper if I'm you know those are my averages if I'm lucky I get seven it's very hard for me to sleep past seven hours um, it's really about the quality of sleep are you getting into the four effective cycle uh, stages of sleep and you know down to the stage four you can do that by proper sleep prep right you know no you know try not to eat caffeine drinking alcohol eating before bed things like that will uh, will affect your physiology and won't allow you to get into those deeper cycles so so sleep hygiene uh, keeping your room dark and things like that. So it's really about understanding quality sleep, not 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 really as much about quantity.
0: I got it. All right, so let me ask you about mindset for a minute. Like frankly, frankly, Rich, I wish I had a better mindset. like I'm current I'm constantly trying to flip my mindset. It seems to me that if I'm going to achieve true reinvention or transformation, it has to start with an improved and elite mindset. So how do you go about creating an empowering mindset? How do you improve in that regard?
1: yeah well so so i'm so one of the things i really am a proponent of is purpose um and and purpose for me starts with understanding my objectives and and oftentimes if not almost always writing that down um because for me the act of writing down something like that a goal or an outcome allows me to uh to expand upon it in ways that fill out that purpose and that um and that meaning around that i mean it's something it's one thing to say hey i want to Run a marathon, right? And you know, that's by the end of the year. But when I can write that down and start start explaining why I want to run that marathon, what are the, some of the things that I think it'll do for me? That really begins to fill out that purpose and, and set the mindset in a way that that allows you to start kind of pursuing that. Um, once that's set, I always like to say, be resolute in the outcome, but be flexible in the approach, right? Um, because it because the pathway, even though you can kind of lay out a, a general pan, a plan. The pathway is very rarely going to go exactly how you planned it, right? It's kind of like the, the, the Tyson saying, you know, it's, everybody has a plan until someone gets punched in the face, right? Um, you have to understand that things are going to change. I always like to use rock climbers as an example because they can teach us a lot. I don't, I don't rock climb. I don't like heights, so I don't, <laughs> I don't climb. Rock climber stands at the, the base of a cliff and looks at the top. That rock climber says, hey, the top is my outcome, right? And then that climber begins to climb. And he or she is going to find the best handholds and holes as they, as they go up that face. And it's going to be a little bit scattered. They're not going to be able to see everything all at once. They're going to kind of have to adjust as they go. And sometimes the best handhold or foothold is actually going to be down and off to the right, right? Which means they're going to have to move away from their goal so that they can get a better optic to reach their goal, right? And that happens even in, our, in any goal we have. Sometimes the pathway feels like it's taking us away. But all it is is a, it's, a, it's a better handhold or foothold so we can get a better optic so we can continue on forward. So be flexible in the results, but be resolute in the outcome.
0: I love that analogy. That works so well for me. Now, you're also big, Rich, on the concept or notion of asking questions. We're constantly asking questions, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. So let me ask you this. What types of questions do most people ask themselves, and what are the types of questions we should be asking ourselves?
1: Yeah, you know, so we have to, so this is really important that we all understand our neurology. We're designed, our brains are designed to answer questions. That's how we figure out the world. And like you said, it's oftentimes unconscious. We're just bouncing things off our hippocampus, asking questions about it, relate, making relations that we've either seen or not seen before. When we consciously take charge of that process, when we embed a question into our frontal lobe, into our conscious mind, our brain has no choice but to become Uh, to come up with answers. And so I do this experiment with people when I teach classes sometimes. I say, listen, take out a sheet of paper and write at the top of it, how would I double my income in the next six months? And I give the the participants about 30 seconds to answer that question. Because I say, write down anything that pops in your head, right? So they take 30 seconds. Usually you get people, they have five or six answers written down. And I tell them, I said, listen, in 30 seconds, your brain came up with five or six answers. Now, some of them might be ridiculous, some of them might be actually practical. But the fact is your brain started answering that questions. Oftentimes we are guilty and it's unbeknownst to us of doing this the wrong way. We ask the wrong questions. We say, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Um, why are these people out to get me? As soon as we lodge that question into our frontal lobe, our brain is going to come up with answers and most of them are going to be ridiculous, but they're all going to be disempowered. Right? So so the key is the secret of every high performer I've ever seen. And I've certainly done this since I was in high school is to deliberately take charge of the framing of those questions and ask better ones. How can I grow from this? Who's out there that can help me? What else can I do, right? Um, our brains will, if we take charge of our neurology, our brains will always begin to answer questions. A question I always get from people is say, what are the best questions? That is very subjective to the situation, but I will say this. If you, have, if you don't know what question to ask, a perfect question that I always ask myself in that situation is, what is the better question right now? Hmm. <laughs> and I come up with better questions.
0: You know, that's so great. Like, how do we then direct our neurology? How do we control our brain? Is that not the key? And then, how do you do that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we can do it very. I mean, simply by uh, by controlling our focus. I mean, we we move to what we focus on, right? So, I you know, in the fields, I was lucky enough to go to a bunch of driving schools. I love driving. I think in the matter of life, I would have wanted to be a race car driver. I just love it, or a motorcycle racer, something like that. But in driving school, one of the first lessons they teach you is that when you uh, start losing control of the vehicle, right, and you start, you know, heading towards the, the grass, the wall, always look at the road. Never look at the wall, all right? Look where you want to go. It doesn't matter what direction the car is headed. Try to look where you want to go, and your body will naturally begin to start steering that way, right? This is a perfect analogy for how we operate as human beings. We... we move towards what we focus on. And so, t- so controlling and directing our neurology is about controlling and directing what we choose to focus on. And choosing what we focus on often comes down to a very simple act of asking the question, what should I focus on right now?
0: Rich, I would imagine you, I can tell, obviously, you like driving, So, and I've heard you make NASCAR analogies. I know you like sports. You understand sports. You always hear this from athletes and coaches. Just focus on what you can control. I've heard you also say that SEALs often talk about controlling your three-foot world. It sounds pretty self-evident, but exactly what does that mean, and then how critical is that for all of us?
1: Yeah, and so that really is, it's it's enormously critical, and it really speaks to how to perform in environments of deep uncertainty and and stress and challenge right and the, the reason is because our we get uncomfortable we get anxious we get fearful when there's uncertainty around us when the environment is doesn't make sense okay and this is what feels are really and really stack ops guys are the masters of I, I kind of nicknamed us masters of uncertainty we're we're designed and trained to be dropped into environments of deep uncertainty and just figure it out i mean that's that's what we do the way we do that is we start to chunk certain elements, right? We start to ask ourselves, okay, about this environment, what do I understand? All right, and you start making that list. And out of what I understand, what can I control? As soon as you ask and answer that question, you move towards that, okay? And once you move towards that, you actually are rewarded neurologically with dopamine. We get a dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that says, hey, this feels good, keep going. We get a dopamine hit, okay? That allows you to Pull back, look at the situation, the environment, and ask that question again. And so when you talk about moving through any environment that feels anxious, stressful, or uncertain, it's all about asking yourself the question, okay, what can I control in this moment? You move to that. Once that's done, you ask the question again. And what you'll find is you're stepping through the environment. And as you step through, eventually you get through it.
0: So, Rich, what about like this notion of mental toughness? I'm obsessed with this notion of mental toughness. Like, Is that an attribute? And if you can't teach it to me, and I don't have, like, I don't come up in an environment. Say I'm upper middle class, and I've never really had great, great adversity throughout my life. How do I get mentally tougher if I don't have to go through those things?
1: Well, so I've, I, I really thought deeply about mental toughness when I, when I put together the book. And I, I couldn't effectively qualify it as an attribute because right. it didn't seem... It didn't seem that elemental it seemed seemed like mental toughness was made up of a few different things and that's kind of why I focused on the grid attributes I think if you start looking at the grid attributes the grid attributes begin to speak to mental toughness just in pieces right so the grid attributes are courage perseverance adaptability and resilience okay courage courage is literally the ability to decide to step into our fear okay and again our brain is set up and designed so that when we choose to fight, which is step into our fear, we are a circuit. There's a circuit that switches in our brain, and we are given a dopamine hit when we decide to do that, right? And this is this evolutionary design because we were, we were designed to go find and explore and, and, and hunt and do what we needed to do, right? So, so the brain and the body needed ways to reward the efforts. okay? Every time we step into our fear, we decide to fight and step in, we get a reward. Okay, that begins the element. That's the first element of mental toughness. Okay. Um, then there's perseverance. Perseverance is this idea that I'm going to keep kind of doing it, right? This is this is a combination of, of persistence. Which hey, if I'm doing something the same way, I'm just going to keep doing because I'm going to, you know, I'm just be persistent with. It's kind of a stone cutter approach. I'm going to knock on something, that, you know, a hundred times before it breaks. That might be the way. It's also a combination of tenacity. Sometimes you need tenacity, which is hey, I'm going to. Try something, but if it doesn't work, I'm going to change. And then you start getting into that of the mental fortitude, the ability to kind of distinguish between pers- uh, persistence and tenacity and kind of step through. So courage, perseverance, I'm stepping through, adaptability, which is, hey, the environment is changing around me without my control, and I have to change, right? I'm not going to change it, so I have to change. I have to evolve. I have to adapt or else I will grow extinct. So, so it's an ability to adapt to the environment, be willing to, to bend with the wind if you need to. Uh, And then finally, resiliency. After you're going through all of that madness and and stress and strife, how can I effectively recover and get back to baseline so I can do it again when I need to? And I think all of that, I think that process, I think mental toughness is really a process. And I think from an attribute standpoint, that's how I would kind of describe the process of mental toughness. Wow.
0: Rich, what about grit? How would you define
1: Grit. So, grit I would define as those as the ability to kind of pa- uh, power through those moments, okay? And and I would I would actually say they're they're smaller, shorter moments, okay? And I wouldn't put I wouldn't put a specific time frame on, but I would I, I, I made grit a distinguishable category from drive. Whereas drive I would say is the, are those L, those attributes that allow us to kind of set and achieve audacious and long-term goals. Those are the drive ones. Whereas grit is the ability to kind of power through. So so in the in the in the process of, for example setting and moving towards a goal over long term you are going to need spurts of grit to do that right so so grit is kind of that short-term power through persevere tough it out and drive is like hey how can i set a long-term goal and over the course of time move towards that be resolute and figure it out and make it happen
0: so rich what about drive you know a few things before you go and it's all so fascinating to me but what about drive is that is that purely innate you always hear people say man that guy is so driven that guy wants it so badly is it innate or can you develop drive
1: I, well i think you can develop any of these uh, so so i think i think those who seem innately driven are simply people who happen to have been uh... who happen to have a natural predominance for the drive attributes things like self-efficacy, discipline, open mind, and even cunning and narcissism to a degree Um, those who aren't necessarily driven uh... may have one or two of those but may be lacking on others and certainly certainly someone if they want to develop any one of the attributes can decide to do that and develop their drive Uh, but there are some people who are just fortunate enough to have a predominance of all those attributes and and uh, show up pretty driven.
0: <laughs> so, Rich, what about you? Like, he, I mean, frankly, I, I find you to be extremely cerebral, but I, I just, I don't know how you get through what you get through, you personally and those like you, without having whatever you want to call it, like a chip on your shoulder, that intense drive and fire and focus. Like, what were you like before you attempted all of this? Did you have that kind of drive? Was there a chip on your shoulder? <laughs>
1: You know, it's a great question, Jim. I, I I don't know. I'd have to really do some some introspection to to see if there's a chip on my shoulder. I, I think I think I certainly was interested in trying something that very few people could do. Um, this is where the little bit of the narcissism comes in. You know, I wanted to be a badass. I wanted to be the best at something. And I think that's why I think narcissism, to a healthy degree, is an incredible driver. Because I asked my my team buddies the same thing. Like, yeah, I wanted to be a badass. You're you're 22 years old or you're 18 years old, and you want to drive something that no one else can do. So. So I think it was that, but again, that doesn't get you necessarily through the really, really tough stuff. Um, when the, when things, when the shit really hits the fan and it's really ugly and dirty, I think what gets you through are these attributes. And I think I just I fortunately um, was was predisposed with with many of them, and perhaps some of the things I did as I grew up helped develop those. Um, but uh, but I would I would maintain that guys who get through SEAL training just show up and. And they are naturally predisposed to have a little bit more of some of these grid attributes and some of these drive attributes that, that allow you to kind of – and some of the team ability attributes that allow, to, allow you to get through it.
0: All right, so you've seen this. I mean, you did get through it, and you've taught it, and you've analyzed it, and you've recruited, and you, you've made this something where people are counting on you to select these kind of candidates. I mean, you've done this for a long, long, long time. So who are the guys who get through it, and who are the guys who don't? Because most wash out, obviously.
1: Yeah. Well. Okay. So I think I think um, obviously there's courage in anybody who tries. That's cool. I think perseverance um, and resiliency. I think you have to be able to persevere uh, uh, and and be resilient. I think if you have to be a little bit more on those um, and adaptable, because the because you just have to understand, hey, the the shit might hit the fan. I have no control over that, so I just have to adapt and and get through. So I think I think. I think the grit attributes are – you have a predominance of the grit attributes. I think you have a predominance of some of the drive attributes, the guys who get through, which is self-efficacy, um, open-mindedness, cunning, uh, and narcissism, and discipline. Um, one of the biggest things, Jim, that I think uh, is a distinguisher is humor. So let me tell you a story. Mm-hmm. In, in field training, you do something called surf torture, and for the audience members who don't know what that is, you, uh, as students, you link arms. Uh, with each other. You walk out to this into the surf zone until about knee high, and then you you, you turn around, you lay back, okay, and the and the, the waves crash over you, and then they recede and they crash over you. And anybody who who knows Southern California knows the water actually is not that warm, <laughs> you know, and especially in November it was like in the fifties. It is one of the one of the coldest things that you could ever do, and it, and a lot of people quit.
0: Rich, can well, I just say, is a is a native California? I'm just going to say it. It's fucking cold, all right. It's yeah, really fucking yeah. cold. Yeah, it's miserable. It's miserable
1: because the wind hits you. Once the, once the waves receive them, the wind hits you, right? So, so anyway, um, the instructors will, during this evolution oftentimes, as they did when I was in the surf zone, they drive up on the beach with a van and they get out with a megaphone. They say, okay, and I remember them doing this to me. They say, hey, we have hot chocolate and blankets and donuts for anybody who quits right now, okay? Okay. Um, and you get a lot of people quitting. And I remember them saying this to us when we were in the, in the surf zone. And the guy to my right, the guy next to me I was locked arm with, immediately yells at the instructor. He says, hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't have any chocolate glazed donuts, I'm not quitting. Right? <laughs> right. So he says that, and I burst out laughing, and he burst out laughing. And in that moment, I was like, ooh, I'm going to be okay. I, we're going to make it. And I look to my left, okay, and the guy to my left, he's stone-faced, right? He didn't even hear the joke. He's lost in his pain. And I say to myself, I like, that guy's not going to make it. And sure enough, within a minute or two, he gets up and he quits. Well, what happened there was that laugh, right? We don't understand. Sometimes we don't recognize the power of laughter. Laughter is an involuntary response. And when we laugh, we release three chemicals, okay? Two neurotransmitters and one hormone. One neurotransmitter called dopamine, which you've already described. It's this feel-good chemical. We all know about it. It just makes it says, keep doing this. This feels good, okay? That's dopamine. We also get endorphins. Well, every athlete who's listening to this or anybody who – who runs or does any athletics, understands endorphins, mass pain, right? They're the runner's high. They're, they basically, they're the human body's opiate, okay? You also get flooded with endorphins when you, when you laugh. And then you also get oxytocin, which is, kind of a, which is a hormone. It kind of moves as fast as a neurotransmitter sometimes, but it's a bonding chemical. It's, it's known as a love hormone. It connects, bonds people, right? So in that surf zone, what happened was when, when my buddy made that joke and we both laughed, immediately my body told me, okay, dopamine, this is good, keep going, you're, you're doing fine. Endorphin said, hey, this doesn't feel that bad. And then oxytocin said, hey, you're, you guys are in this together. You're fine. You're, you're going to be good, right? Laughing is a hugely important hack into making it through challenge, stress, and adversity. And I've never, ever experienced a high-performing team that hasn't had at least one class clown, usually more, that are the guys or gals who make the joke, who make people laugh when times are down. And again, it doesn't mean you have to be the person who's the class clown. It just means you have to be able to laugh. When times are down. If you can do that, every single seal that makes it through Buzz, and in fact, the things I probably one of the things I missed the most about the seal teams was the humor. I remember being in times where we were laughing so hard we were crying and the environment was miserable, <laughs> you know, um, because humor I think is one of the most important things.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So let me ask you this. Like, do you think that true reinvention or transformation is possible? Like if I'm really imaginative, and I can visualize clearly what and who I want to be, and I'm committed to doing the work, can I I mean, maybe this is really elementary and really just too basic, but can I kill off the present me and bring back a completely reinvented and transformed version of me? Or is that not feasible? Well, you know, I,
1: I would, I'm with you. I think, I think everything's feasible. I, here's what I would say, Jim. I, you know, I'm really, I'm really into people exploring their potential. And, of course, potential, just by the definition, it's never there, right? It's always ahead. Um, and, so, and to do that, you have to be able to walk out to your edges, which means you have to walk into discomfort and challenge yourself, all right? I am kind of this person who thinks, listen, we're all human beings, okay? So we're all the same that way. But we're not like kind of like automobiles. Every, every car on the street is an automobile. But some are Jeeps. Some are Ferraris, some are SUVs. And there's no judgment there, okay, because the Jeeps can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, all right? The key is, I think, for all of us is to lift our hoods and figure out what our engine looks like because if we're a Jeep trying to run on a Ferrari track, it's going to be a lot tougher to make that transformation uh, than if we say, you know what, I could actually really do phenomenal things for myself and the planet if I roll on the Jeep track, okay? Um, I'm never going to be a Drew Brees on the football field, ever. You know, but that wasn't my niche. I found my niche in the in the SEAL teams, right? Um, so I think it's important and incumbent on people uh, for people to understand. Hey, figure out a little bit about yourself. Look under the hood, um, because there's a lot of tips and, and tricks out there that allow and help for better performance. But listen, if I'm trying to put nitrous oxide tanks on my jeep and big tires on my ferrari it's not going to work very well right i mean so you have to figure out which if you if you understand your own engine you start also understanding what tips and tricks actually are going to work the best for you so i do think transformation but the best kind is is understanding yourself to the extent that you can really really excel
0: i get that i like that so then finally rich let me ask you when you talk about tricks and hacks Are there, you know, do you subscribe to there are tricks and hacks or is there no such thing? And is there really no shortcut?
1: Well, I think I think the shortcuts are all um, are all internal to our minds and our own physiology. I think the shortcuts are what can we do with ourselves in the moment? Because, again, when I was in the in the throes of really tough combat or in the throes of training, there were no inspirational quotes coming, you know, popping in my mind. Right. Um, I was I was. Running on what I had, and I think um, so. I think the tricks and hacks. I mean, developing a working relationship with your brain and your nervous system and your physiology is a hack, right? You understand breath work. You understand vision work. You understand how to how to shift from sympathetic from your sympathetic system to parasympathetic uh, system, right? HRV breathing. There are some good things in there that allow us to start understanding and and controlling our physiology and controlling our neurology. And I think those are the hacks versus the pill everybody wants or the inspirational quote everybody wants to wants to kind of keep in the back of their head because just those just don't show up in the in the hardest moments.
0: all right so finally breathing you mentioned breathing everybody i know who i respect who teaches this sort of thing talks about the importance of breathing why is breathing so important
1: well i mean we have to understand that everything our entire human system starts with the nervous system, and the nervous system is connected to everything, and our hearts and our brains and our nervous system are all connected by the vagus nerve, all right? And, and, the, and what they found is that our, our relationship to the sympathetic and parasympathetic, which also um, directs the levels of, of hormones and neurotransmitters that are being released, can be, um, can be managed through our breathing. Listen, if, we, if we're frightened and anxious, right, and we're starting to get a fear response, what happens to our breathing is we start taking short breaths right we where our breathing uh, uh, quickens and we get less oxygen for every breath right um, it's a natural reaction so so our nervous system does something in fear right and our, our breathing responds well you can do that the reverse you can you can take control of your breathing and your nervous system will respond so breathing just like the nervous system and and the and the fear and anxiety response affects our breathing, we can use the breathing to affect our nervous system. And that's that's exactly what these folks who are doing with the breath work do. They're just basically reversing the process. And you can do that with vision, you can do that with the way you think, and you can do that with breathing.
0: Bitch, I mean this in the best possible way. I feel like I'm trying to drink out of a fire hose. I mean, you were giving me so much information and so quickly that I'm trying to take it all in and process it as quickly as I can. Let me finally ask you, this notion of flow state, right? Can you, can you personally, or can any of us, can you put yourself into a flow state or is it something that just happens? Well,
1: so there are some experts on flow, some of whom are my friends. Stephen Kotler uh, writes about flow and talks about flow a lot. And I think, you know, there's, they, they, he, he talks about some ways that you can you can kind of trigger some flow states um, what I under, as I've thought about flow states more in depth, what I've understood flow states to be in a, in a very simple way is a very uh, dynamic rhythm and shifting in between your sympathetic and parasympathetic systems so so the, the sympathetic system which is this action system and the parasympathetic system which is like this calming restful system well, from what i understand flow states to be it's kind of a it's like a wave that kind of goes in and out it's almost like a infinity curve that kind of waves in and out of that where you're you're in action but you're gonna you're kind of maintaining a calm and a, and a and a focus right so so i have yet to crack the code personally on triggering myself into a flow state i find i drop into flow states in certain situations when i'm running for example when i'm jogging oftentimes i'll find myself in a flow state just in thinking sometimes when i'm writing i'll find myself getting into flow states um uh there's more work i have to do i believe that it's been studied and researched enough by some of these experts who write about it that some some people can really work at it uh it's tough though it it really is and i that's why i'm kind of like hey if i can optimally
0: perform i'm happy (laughs) you know
1: if flow comes and shows up awesome but but if i'm doing optimal performance i'm I'm, I'm doing pretty darn well.
0: So, Rich, when you, going back to the original point that you got into, you want to be a Navy SEAL because you want to be a badass. I'm kind of curious. Like, when you look out over the landscape, whatever that landscape is, like, who do you consider a badass?
1: Oh, man, Jim, that, you know, this is my thing. I, I think there are so many badasses out there that I, and I want to, and, and for me, it's like, okay, how are those people? Like, these kids who are fighting cancer, in St. Jude's, they're badasses. The veterans who are injured, they're badasses. The people who are on the front lines of COVID, they're badasses. We have some athletes that are badasses. We have some soldiers and, and some some elite forces that are badasses. We have some musicians that are badasses. I think you know badassery for me is is the is the ability for someone to really kind of perform at in the in the grittiest moments and and power through and and I mean the scientists who just landed the. The rover on Mars—they're a bunch of badasses in my mind, you know. So, so I would say—I mean, I—I I look up to those people who really endeavor to excel in their in their genre, and and whether it's a whether it's a scientist landing a, a, a rover on Mars or whether it's a, a janitor taking true pride in what he does every day—I uh, really respect people who take pride in what they do and endeavor to excel and endeavor to explore their edges. That's who I think the badasses are. There's tons of them to learn from and I'm still learning from, from as many as I can every day I can.
0: Right. This is why I wanted to find you. And then a final thought you mentioned that you have kids, like I've got a son in college. I've got another son who's a sophomore in high school. And it's really curious, you know, like, what do you teach them? What's important? I mean, is it important to you that your kids are badasses, or is it important to you that they just find a passion, whatever it is, and they find their path and their journey? How do you approach that as a father, knowing what you know and what you've achieved?
1: Yeah, I, I approach it with the latter, because I remember my dad, my dad was never, he was never prescriptive as to what he wanted any of us to do. He was always just open. He said, you know, he was always just like, and my mom as well, they're like, hey, just find your find your path. What I, I was told by a friend of mine a, a long time ago, he said, he said, hey, listen, I think, I think it's our responsibility as parents, it's just a throw as many things in front of our kid's windshield as we can and just see what sticks, you know, and don't, and don't place any judgment. You know, my, my boy wants to try baseball. Sure. If he does it for a season, doesn't like it. Okay. Try something else. Right. If he wants to try the cello, let's try that. If he wants to do drawing, he does that. And, you know, we are so plastic from the ages of birth to about 22. I think it's more for us and and Jim, I'm like, you, know, I have a 15 year old and a 13 year old. So they're right in that seniors. It's more about us letting them forge their, their their learnability and figure out those desires both of my kids they they're leaning weight towards science and math and and I'm just like I'm thrilled because of it <laughs> because it's just so cool um and they're being their own people and you know it's tough you know I've heard it's tough when you're and I think that some pro athletes have this anybody who's really been successful in having kids you don't want to become a burden your kid in terms of what they think they need to live up to and i think it's i've been i've always been very explicit with my kids to say hey find your own pathway what i do is just what i did it's simply a pathway it has nothing to do with you if you want to do it great but that's not that's not what you have to do so i think that's how i approach it and and oh by the way i'm still learning it's a it's a parenting is a game you have to consistently stay humble on
0: <laughs> Boy, that's the truth right and then finally rich how how have they done your kids in the pandemic what's that been like for you and for them
1: yeah, they they they've they've been so well. We we actually we were getting some remodeling done on our house so we, they had to share a room for most of the pandemic and they just became even mo- more close. Um I know it, it was tough you know the not being in school was tough on them. My thirteen year old is now back in school for two days a week, so that's really helping. Uh just getting that social activity back. But but we really ch- used the time to gel and bond as a family and so uh and so they're doing well. I have to, I'm. I'm very, very grateful. They're resilient. They're great kids. And um. And we just. We. You know, my wife and I have just stayed, stayed uh, cognizant of that, and tried to communicate with them, and kept the lines of communication open, and you know, made sure we were always being a family. You know. Um. You know, they're still 15 and 13, but I still try to. Hug and kiss them every day as long as
0: they let me. That's so great. That's so great. So, Rich, the book really is amazing. The attributes: twenty-five hidden drivers of optimal performance. Finally, then, finally, then. Who who are you working with right now? Are you still working with the military, corporations, individuals, all of the above? What's the future look like for you?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm working with with most of the above. Um, I'm really. I'm. Put, I'm talking about the book, and I'm really the the attributes kind of business is helping folks. Um, Talk about attributes. I do. I do help with uh, leadership, with high-performing teams, and um, selection assessment, uh, and then just building out this uh, this attribute stuff. Right. I'm. I'm. I'm excited about the book because I think it's really helping people kind of deconstruct performance. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna roll down that road uh, for as long as it takes to get that get
0: that kicking it's an amazing book it's a fascinating book it's available where all books are sold rich i so appreciate the opportunity to talk to you to meet you to have you share your thoughts with me and with the audience i got so much out of that in fact that that's the kind of conversation i know i'm gonna have to listen to over and over and over again to really fully process it but i appreciate you so much and thank you so much for making time for that
1: Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate being on here. I look forward to when we can shake hands in person once all this stuff is is behind us. And I just, uh, I'm so honored to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: I was going to say it would be an honor to meet you and shake your hand. I can't wait to do that, too, Rich. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. My thanks to Rich Deviney for a really deep and profound conversation. And of course, for all his years of service. Now here are a few of my takeaways starting with this distinction between optimal and peak performance. This entire time I have been chasing peak performance when to Rich's point that's probably not even feasible at least not consistently and by the way how do I not know that? In my day job I talk to athletes and coaches and I have now for the better part of a quarter of a century. They're all looking to quote Peak at the right time, you know, the postseason or the playoffs, or if you're a golfer for the majors, if you're a tennis player for the Grand Slam events, they're not looking to redline or peak every single day. Nobody peaks all the time in life, not even the world's best athletes or spec ops types. Instead, they're looking for optimal performance. As Rich says, they're looking to be the best they can be in any given moment. It goes back to what Inky Johnson said in episode two of this podcast. He would tell his teammates at the University of Tennessee, listen, I know you're not at your best right now. That's fine, but give me the very best that you have right now. For instance, you do that every single day, and I guarantee you'll be better than most. Even more importantly, you'll be the best version of yourself because that's ultimately what we're all chasing anyway. Next thing, I also love Rich's two-minute rule. Now, I've got a similar rule myself. Don't get hooked. Don't let somebody or something or some circumstance hook you. Don't get hooked. I learned that early in my career. Hell, we should have all learned that early in our lives. I tell it to my sons all the time. Don't get hooked. Except Rich's two-minute rule is even cleaner because he puts a time limit on it. Like, if something unfortunate or even something bad happens to you at work, on a personal level, just take two minutes. Take two minutes, do what you have to do. Lash out, wallow, cry, dwell, whatever. Do it, but make sure you do it in a two-minute window. Then get back on track, or as Rich refers to it, get back on baseline. Just as interesting to me is the fact that it also applies to success. Whenever something good or positive happens, go ahead, celebrate that. But for only two minutes, then back on baseline. That way you never get too complacent with victories and you never get hooked or trapped in downward spirals when things don't go your way. Always forward, never back. And the way to do that is by vigilantly enforcing his two-minute rule. And finally, I love this notion that we're constantly asking ourselves questions all day, every day, even if we don't know it, and that most of us are asking ourselves all the wrong questions. You know, things like, why does this crap always happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why can't I catch a break? Or better yet, you know what, skip all that and get right to the big one. Why is the world out to get me? Here's your answer. It's not. Yeah, right, because because you're the one the world just decided it was coming for. Sure, it didn't. That's not the way it works. But if you tell yourself anything long enough, you'll believe it. Rich has a much better idea. Ask yourself much better questions. Instead of asking yourself, why did that have to happen to me— Ask, how am I better for this experience than I was before? How am I smarter, tougher, stronger? How am I better for having gone through that? In other words, just reframe it. Turn it on its head. As Ed Milet said, things don't happen to you, they happen for you. And as Rich Deviney just said, you just need to ask yourself better questions. That's a wrap for Episode 5 of The Reinvention Project. As always, thank you so very much for listening to this podcast. And if you have a minute and you haven't done so already, please get subscribed. That way you don't have to go looking for the pod. It will find you every single week. And if you don't mind sharing it with somebody you care about or think might benefit from it, I would appreciate that very much. Have yourself an amazing week, and I will see you right back here next Thursday. Let's do it.